I'm Dr. Adam Jirachi. And you are listening to Love's a Secret Weapon podcast. Chapter 14. So do the zonk. Part 3. Many times I'd been to Lake Tahoe, but never with Lenny. We decided to rent a boat on the lake. Neither one of us were skilled boat people. Joey put on water skis at the landing. The skipper on the shore started us off by revving the engine and waving to us as we set out on an adventure. Joey stood up on the skis but quickly fell into the icy waters as he held on to the rope. The engine sputtered and came to a halt. Anna sat on my lap while her father tried to get the motor started to no avail. Joey was turning blue from the cold, so I flagged a nearby boat to rescue him. I guess that I overdid it flying to Lake Tahoe, and then with all the excitement of being stranded on the boat because I hemorrhaged as soon as I returned home. My doctor told me that I had been carrying twins, and I lost one. My maternal grandmother was a twin, and it's supposed to skip a generation, so that makes sense. For six weeks, I stayed in bed. Luckily, a Peruvian lady named Heidi was already our live-in housekeeper and loved our children, so I could take this time out essentially while I was securing a place in my womb for our third child. The thought obsessed me that Anna should stay home from school the first six months to get to know her baby sister and help me with this new member of our family. Looking back, I rationalized my thinking about how things should be. Keeping Anna home at age six was an old world mindset. It was also because school had become a real thorn in my side. After Anna started preschool with her brother, Lenny became concerned that the Montessori school they were attending was not giving them a well-rounded education. The Montessori approach is very liberal and children are given choices for what activities they want to do. This was always a quality I admired and I desired in my life, but the pressure was on to change schools to a more academic environment. The Cardin method emphasized reading, so it was decided to enroll the children in a Cardin school in Santa Monica that rented a space from a church. It was a very structured setting. Parents were asked to drop off and pick up their kids outside and discouraged from entering the interior of the school building. These were the times when spanking a child was approved of and Cardin posted a newspaper article permitting and advocating this disciplinary action. I really wasn't okay with that. But I was hoping my children would be spared for the sake of learning their three R's. To be more acquainted with what was going on behind closed doors, I would purposely not give my children their lunches to take with them. Instead, I would show up to deliver their lunches. And when I did, I'd see Joey was being unfairly treated. One day I walked into his classroom where he was seated toward the back and saw that he had filled up a whole page with writing at only seven years of age. 
His teacher did not notice me and came up from behind my son, snatched the paper out from under him, told him to write it again, and tapped him mean-spiritedly on the shoulder. Another time, Joey had been complaining that he was locked in a closet as a punishment. The final straw was when I saw Anna glassy-eyed with a bump on her forehead after falling in the playground. It was time for another change, and so I enrolled Joey in an innovative school in Santa Monica and decided to keep Anna home for the experience of being with her new baby sister. I called the Board of Education to find out if it was required to homeschool with the aid of a tutor. I was told the law permitted a child until age eight to remain home. When I decided to keep her home, I hired a wonderful couple to tutor anyway. Once or twice a week, they would teach art, history, and language. On Saturdays, Joey and Anna's playmates, Amos and sometimes Eric, would join in on language class, practicing German, the language their mother spoke, as well as Spanish and French. Lenny's dad's sigh had settled down after a year of sailing the globe and married a lady named Miriam. She was the antithesis of Jeanette. Sigh's lifelong love and beyond was genteel, coming from an affluent Austrian family. Her features were fine, much like my daughter Anna's. Oh, those almond-shaped eyes of shades of green, as though you were looking into an ancient forest. It's always in the eyes that you really get to know the other person. That's right. They are the windows of our soul. And the soul lives on. So we always recognize one. Isn't that so? Miriam had an edge. She was petite but thick-boned. Sai had known her socially for many years. And you could say she was the bonnie to Sai's Clyde. We got along very well. Miriam liked my style, and so we set out to remodel my kitchen. Sai and Miriam had moved into a gorgeous Normandy cottage on Amalfi Drive, which was walking distance from our home. Miriam invited me over for tea and a proper talk about the strategy. She told me, I know a man named Al Messenger, who is a superb craftsman. Primarily, he restores cabinetry and furniture. I told her that I had just acquired a panettiere, or a pie-and-bread cooling closet. The tin sidings were perforated to cool the freshly made pastries. Made of poplar, this piece was crafted in Pennsylvania by Dutch-French-influenced artisans. Beautifully arched inserts marked the French flair with porcelain knobs on the only drawer where I kept my silverware until I needed a place to store all of Anna's artwork. She's an excellent artist and created her own characters with their very own personalities. I treasured them. I told Miriam that I would contact Al to restore the panettiere, which was wearing a very dried out and bowing top. Al lived in the valley, and when I met him, he expressed a very Christian attitude and belief system. His world was filled with old-world craftsmen, men who carved wood and masons who constructed Parisian-style bricking. 
You know, the streets of Paris have a radius pattern of bricks that are sliced and buffed and turned into cobblestones. Ooh la la. Al made an appointment with me to pick up the chest, which was too large for me to transport. It was 84 inches high, 42 inches wide, 18 inches deep, and had very flimsy antique locks. Did not secure the doors very well. Well, several weeks later, my penitentiary was ready to be delivered. I paid $125 for it, cost me double to restore, and was worth every penny. One thing led to another. Momentum was gathering to begin the kitchen remodel. Peer pressure had been mounting to hire a decorator for my living room. I always preferred to do all of that myself, but the experts all around me had to see credentials. I say experts with quote and quote. The woman I hired had a husband who was a contractor. What a scoundrel. He left me stranded after he demolished my kitchen and sealed the doors shut. I was due in April, and the 1978 holidays were approaching. After my trip to Lake Tahoe, I was very weak, so taking on this immense project was monumental. By mid-November, the nights were long. It started getting dark by 4.30 or 5. My refrigerator was outside. Every night, I had a cocoa ritual with my kids. We had Hadley cups that were hand-painted with lambs and ships and the words, the end, inside the bottom of the cup. Every night, Anna would inhale the cocoa I made with Ghirardelli cocoa powder and raw milk from our Altadena milkman, who delivered once a week. The cold night air was getting to me, and I developed a cold. My daughter got sick, too. I was five months pregnant and lost 10 pounds in one week. By now, Christmas was upon us, and we were still struggling to get by without the use of the kitchen. My dishes were breaking as I washed them in the children's bathroom. Even Lenny started gaining weight. He's always been svelte, but his body was showing the stress. Fever was raging in me. I had to call my mother, who in her own inimitable way made me her chicken soup and brought it by that day. I was lying on the living room sofa when she and Maury arrived. It was the only time my mother showed compassion and made circles on my back with a sympathetic stroke. Christmas was so important to Lenny, but that year I was too frail to participate. By New Year's, Lenny pleaded with me to bring in the New Year. I dragged myself out of bed before midnight to watch High Anxiety with Lenny. Ooh, Zayety, Mel Brooks crooned like Frank Sinatra in his trench coat and fedora. I was at my wit's end to put my kitchen back together. Al Messenger came to my rescue. He told me he knew just the right person for the job. I called the number he gave me and set up a meeting. Captain Jack showed up and Lenny and I fell in love with him. I fired our former contractor and was finally ready to move on. Our new contractor promised to deliver in two weeks as soon as Al's cabinetry was ready. Al matched my new window cabinets to the panettiere, which was in a honey hue. My sister-in-law, Roz, and I took a day to go 
tile hunting in Pasadena. Following the Dutch influence, I chose antique delft tiles to anchor the walls. The contractor installed a radius cobblestone floor that met up with an indoor barbecue. My God, I was already in my eighth month. And sure enough, the remodel was complete. Well, the moment my little Katie arrived into our family, we actually had a home to function in. Katie was born on April 19, 1979, blasted out into the world like a football. The doctor literally stepped back and caught her as she flew out. Making her first appearance in the world, her father witnessed her birth. His first time. Lenny acknowledged to me that she had the same toes as I have, a characteristic he never really mentioned but found poignant in the moment. I saw a gorgeous little girl who I couldn't wait to introduce to her brother and sister, anxiously awaiting her arrival at home in the Palisades. Her blood count was so low, so Cedars decided to keep her until the Billy Rubin count met their standards. It took five days of being cooped up in a hospital. I had a private room on one wing while Goldie Hahn had her Katie on the cesarean side. Upon our return, my memories of Joey, now almost ten, standing in our entry doorway, knees shaking like an expectant uncle, and Anna bewildered at the thought of becoming a middle child and also extremely excited about having a new little baby to play with. Mother and child settled in to a now family of five. My joy of cooking was ever-present, so I would spend my afternoons with my children and preparing dinner. Their father's hours were changing a bit because he was taking on an executive role and spending less time in the studio. He was still totally devoted to his artists, and at the time David Lee Roth from Van Halen was going through difficulties, and I'd listened to Lenny dealing masterfully with him. Paul Simon was also in a state of stagnancy when it came to his songwriting, and took advice from Lenny, whom he had known since the days of feeling groovy, to seek counseling. And that led to the therapist telling him to go home and write a song about anything. That song was Song About the Moon. That was when Lenny was at his best. He was such a great listener with his artists. Any of our efforts to remain a family were like a band-aid for a broken neck. My habit of getting high was incessant. Although I managed to take care of my house and children and prepare gourmet meals on most nights, I always tried to be a good mother. I felt so neglected and alone. I was never sure of why my emotions were teetering on the edge of rage and sometimes yelling and gritting my jaw shut. If only I knew then that I'd been lied to by my mother and dad. So a kitchen remodel while being pregnant, that's a lot of work to undertake. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what do they say? There's a, 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 new, a new little one on the way and then you uh, demolish your kitchen at the same time. Oh, yeah. that's pretty inconvenient um, <laughs> <laughs> when you already have a family, you know, to feed and. Um, I love, I love, as many, many people feel, you know, Mm. the kitchen is the heart of the home. 
And um, I was very excited. One thing I discovered early on, so this is around 1978, mm -hmm. is that you know, I inherited an old O'Keefe and Merritt gas stove. Mm. It was almost identical to the one that I grew up with in my, my mother's uh, mm. kitchen. Mm. Yeah. And um, so we're talking pretty vintage, right? Well, mm. that, that particular house was built in 1939 that I was raising my family in. Yeah. And pro the stove was probably the same year. <laughs> and um, we're talking, you know, how many years later? 30, how many? Uh, let's see. I'm, I've never been good at math, so I'm just going to count on my fingers. That's 40 years, isn't it? 40, 40 years, years yeah. old stove, which has a certain charm about it. Mm. But um, I started collecting beautiful La Crusade pots copper pots mm. i loved caring for them i loved keeping the bottoms of the pots clean yes mm. and <laughs> um what do you call that i am i'm not um an anal type person about mm. cleaning mm. but the pots were so beautiful and i wanted to take really good care of them so the gas was starting to destroy them um mm. The flame would start kind of crackling. You know, the La Crusade, which is uh, porcelain? Yes, yes. You, you know, and it comes out so beautiful. The enamel is so smooth and when it's new. And then you expose it to heat and it starts discoloring and it starts cra kind of crazing. Mm. Um, have you had that happen? <laughs> yes. I, I mean, I don't have any of the legitimate pieces. I kind of have the the pieces that have been inspired by that brand. So they look very similar, but they're probably not, they're, they're good quality, but they're probably not the best quality. But yes, I can just think of our big <laughs> red pot that has pretty much got what you're talking about is on the <laughs> bottom of the, after one too many pasta sauces and, yes. and whatever <laughs> <Slow else. cook. laughs> And it, yeah. I, it, it means it's lived in, but at the same time, it is wonderful to keep that stuff in pristine condition because that stuff can last for generations. And that's true. I mean, especially a copper pot, you mm. know, I mean, if you take good care of it, it can. So I, I discovered something called, I think it was called Phasar at the mm. time. That was the mm. name of the company. And what they did is they put electric burners embedded into tile. Mm. And the tile was like 12 by 12 inch. And so that, that would become your counter mm. with a computerized panel that, you know, was to the touch like our phones. Yes. And cut really ahead of its time. Um, and I just love that idea because if you put a, a, an expensive pot on tile and you regulate the heat, as long as you're conscientious about it, mm. It's not going to be exposed to an open flame. Therefore, you can, you know, maybe maintain it a lot better, and which I did. And I've been a fan of electric stovetops ever since. So that's, <laughs> that yeah. was how it began. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that's well, that, how it began. That sounds very ahead of its time because you think of some of that now, the, you know, the touch cooktops and, and you know, you take your, your pot off something and it stops. That you know the heat just stops then and there and um you know all of that I've never had anything like that I've kind of always been a bit more comfortable with a gas stove but um I probably just haven't had a good electric stove before yeah it is a very individual choice I'm mm. sure <laughs> the, actually chefs probably you know legitimate chefs prefer gas they want to see 
where the, the heat's coming from. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but it, anyway, that was my infatuation. And, um, and then, you know, I, I talked about having to evacuate the kitchen because mm-hmm. of the um, contractor that was involved who just, mm. you know, demolished the kitchen, closed the doors and then didn't show up. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and, but during that time, um, my, my first husband had some time off. Mm. And so um, we took advantage of that and because it happened so rarely and just to kind of celebrate the idea that there's going to be a new member of the family. Mm. And I was feeling very good. And, uh, and so we took our children to Lake Tahoe and had this little adventure Mm. Which, um, you know, at one point was really kind of scary because Lake Tahoe, it, for anyone's, you know, information, is a very, very cold, cold mm. lake, high, mm. high up in the Sierra Mountains. And when you submerge your body in that cold water, it really does a number on you. Yeah. And, I had no idea that when we took off at the shore, mm. neither one of us, you know, really knew how to navigate a little boat. <laughs> and and Joey just fearlessly climbed onto water skis. But before we knew it, you know, he let go of the rope and mm. boom, you know, mm. there he is floating in, in this icy cold water. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. There was a, another boat, you know, yeah. not too far away I could shout to and call for help you know it's like oh my gosh you know two two kids and 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 two adults in a little boat uh, yeah big big lake when it's not your uh, comfort zone as well yeah that's it it was scary and I was familiar with Lake Tahoe but Mm. it never really had um I don't even know why we went up there but uh, you know it was part (laughs) of my it was part of my childhood you know that Mm. I never really enjoyed um, you know, I, I don't know if I put this in my yeah, manuscript. I don't know if we've covered this, but you used to go there, um, didn't you? Yeah, well, you know, Maury, my adopted dad, um, loved going to Lake Tahoe mm. for some reason. And so he would pack a small trailer and um, we'd all pile in a station wagon and drive up. It took about 10 hours from Los mm. Angeles. Mm. And get to Lake Tahoe. And um, my two younger brothers would be in the trailer with my mother and, mm. and Maury. Mm. And I would be left alone in the station wagon. Oh, why was that, do you think? Uh, gosh, good question, mm. Adam. <laughs> <laughs> I, I question so much. Mm. But it was always this feeling of being isolated and mm. abandoned and mm. cold because, you know, they're in a trailer snuggling up together and mm. and I'm in this station wagon alone all night in this mm. campground kind of mm. thing. And so I never really had a good feeling about Lake Tahoe. So yeah. I don't know. Maybe I yeah. needed to just kind of change that modality of, you know, mm. how I thought about it and bring my my husband and children up and uh and but yet <laughs> i still i still came upon stumbling blocks which we overcame 
Yeah, and I guess that's really quite interesting, isn't it, that sometimes places have a particular memory associated with them for whatever reason. And you can try to rewrite that sometimes of having new memories there. Unfortunately, in this case, it it probably it didn't really do the job, but you gave it a red hot go. I sure did. And, and then unfortunately, when I arrived back home, mm. you know, um, I uh, I started to hemorrhage mm. in and then, you know, as I was explaining in my story that um, I was told by my, my gynecologist that mm. I lost a child mm. and mm. I miscarried a child, one child, but I was mm. carrying twins. Was there, in, in terms of from a medical point of view, I mean, we'll, we'll obviously talk about the psychological impact of that, but from a medical point of view, is there any procedure that then has to be done if that happens? For me, I just had to stay in bed for several weeks. Yeah. And rest up, and, you know, and then eventually I gained my strength back. Mm. Yeah, because I'm interested also in what does that do? You know, you're expecting, or or, you're not expecting twins because you didn't know that was the case, but then to hear that, um, that must have a very big impact. Mm. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I really didn't have a whole lot of time to think about that, mm, but mm. any loss is, you know, is difficult. And yeah. um, I only, I really only reminisce that my maternal grandmother was a twin and mm. that it skips a generation. Yeah. And that it was kind of a normal pattern for me to have, have twins, but, mm. you know, I'm, I was, absolutely delighted you know with with my daughter <laughs> who ended up really being um gosh a handful you know i mean she she's <laughs> she makes up for you know for the the double energy because mm. she's she's fully packed with lots of <laughs> creativity and beauty mm. and energy and so yeah i mean she, i never really expressed that to mm. her, um, you know, it's, it, in fact, I don't even know if I, exp- now I can't recall if I expressed that to anyone mm. at the time. I was just managing a family and trying to get my strength back. And, mm. Mm. you know, that's, um, so it, it didn't become an issue. Yeah. Yeah. For me. Yeah. No, that's, and that, that makes a good deal of sense. And, I guess certainly also with all that change going on at a house point of view and anyone that's ever tried to renovate something and live in it, I think would probably really relate um, to the drama of it all. But I guess what we're also heading into now is, um, and not to preempt the story too much, but there is going to be some change in the family um, going forward. Oh, yes. Well, you know, that kitchen remodel, Mm. Um, with those, with those doors closed and literally, um, I, I had this, what they call a baker's rack, which I Mm. set up as with a toaster oven and a hot plate and, um, stacked my dishes and put my refrigerator outside. And, you know, it was was kind of like camping, Mm. um, for the rest of the time, you know, just before, just before I gave birth Mm. and, um, and so, yes, it was like, um, as you could say, maybe the, uh, what do you call that? The uh, something before the storm? Yes, the calm before. Well, it wasn't calm, but it was, it was calmer. <laughs> <laughs> it 
Yes, yes, I would say. But in relation to what ultimately Mm. was occurring, it was definitely (laughs) the calm before the storm. Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of our listeners will relate to what we talk about going forward, perhaps if they've experienced, you know, life changes and life upheavals. Um, And, of course, as always, you know, we invite our listeners uh, to contact us to to tell us what they think of what we're talking about. Um, and I think that will be uh, interesting going forward. Um, at, uh, so they can let us know at podcast at donnalauren.net. Uh, and, of course, what we've been doing uh, all season for the uh, you know, first few episodes we've had this season is inviting on guests and we've had a range of different guests um they're often what we call fan guests where you've been very conscious of wanting people who have followed you for a long time or perhaps followed you for a relatively shorter time to come on and talk to us about their own lives and their own perspectives on things and so uh we have another guest today now this guest is a little bit different because we've had this person we've been on this person's uh show before um both of us he is outstanding in fact, he is phenomenal. Mm. He is Plastic EP from Melbourne, Australia. Absolutely. Your neighbor. A neighbor, <laughs> very much so. Um, so, no, I think, uh, yeah, um, I think everyone will enjoy uh, listening to us speak with Plastic EP uh, about his uh, love of music and his work in I guess documenting the history of music and pop culture indeed and I do look forward to hearing our conversation with plastic hello I mean how are you Donna hello darling happy new year thank you we love you so much I I love you too thank you plastic for being on our podcast I I'm just so so pleased to know you, Donna, because you're an American, right? Musical and uh, actress icon. So just people just don't understand the impact that you had. I mean, I'll give you an example, right? I don't know too many people called Donna. So to <laughs> me, you're the most famous Donna. And every time I hear that Richie Valens song, right? I'm only thinking <laughs> of you. It's true. <laughs> It goes Thanks. like this. You know this song, don't you? It goes, oh, yeah. Oh, Donna. Oh, Donna. But it starts like this, right? It goes, I had a girl. <laughs> Donna was her name. Do, 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 do. Since she left me, <laughs> I've never, never been the same. same. Oh, I love, love that, that, that girl. girl. Donna, where can she be? I'm where right can here. she right be? Here. <laughs> yeah, but you see, you see what an impact you have, like Richie Valens had with that song at that time. And you've got to understand, and this is what I'm talking about. I watch your video clips, and like when I see 1964, when I'm watching you on Shindig singing All My Loving, you got to understand what impact Paul McCartney had on the girls. But when you see Donna Lauren on Shindig singing All My Loving, <laughs> Then you gotta understand what impact you had on the boys at that time.
I mean, being a Dr. Pepper calendar girl, I mean, Dr. Pepper was selling by the truckload all over the United States. I mean, that's a big buzz. <laughs> yep, and uh, I'm glad that they're converting to no sugar finally. Ah, there you go. So, <laughs> <laughs> so to take it back, Plastic, when did you first become aware of Donna's music or film or TV? Was it, was it back in the 60s or 70s? Yeah, it was in the 60s because I'm a baby boomer. Mm. Born in 1958, all right, I'll give my age away, so that makes me <laughs> 63 now. Mm. Not that it mattered, but you've got to understand, the uh, Frankie Avalon and their Funicello Beach movies, you got to understand the impact you actually have on Australia too, Donna. Those oh, sure. movies make so many people happy, and we didn't have colour TV till 1974. So what you got to understand is while people are watching on Saturdays these beach movies, they're seeing you, right, and they're embracing the American culture. Because back in the 60s, American culture was it for Australians as well mm-hmm. as the UK culture. But I'd say more so the American music and the American movies than the, than the British. Mm. And why do you think that that had such an impact on, on y'all there? Because Plus. what happens is we're embracing a culture that we love. Like, I can tell you now, people here in the 50s went berserk for Elvis. You know, like going out and buying the 45s and the mm. albums and not watching TV and just listening to the American culture starting off, let's say, from Elvis. There's like so many fanatics that still live in the 50s, even in 2022. Mm-hmm. So our culture was behind six months behind America. So when, <laughs> for example, you see Don Lawrence singing on the beach, you know, it's like, wow, we got beaches here. Wow, we dress like that. Wow, this is groovy. I mean, I can tell you now, growing up in Australia, in the early 60s, when I went to elementary school, I'm honest, the music coming out of the AFM radio, I was more concerned with that and more concerned with, let's say, movies from America and what was happening in America and the UK than I was at school. I mean, that's what's (laughs) made me what I am, a pop historical archivist, Mm. because I realised that why did I learn all this information to do what I'm doing now? It's like it all fell in place. Right, right. Can you, can you, yeah, please explain, you know, like how you evolved from learning about the American culture. Well, thanks, Don. I appreciate it. But as I said, you got to understand when you look back and you look back at these famous American women and you're one of them, right? I'm saying like Annette Funicello, like, you know, these icons of the 60s was what was making culture like the Beatles were making it coming from England and being something new but actually selling what the Americans were doing before while they're in Liverpool they're learning all the American artists and their songs and their tracks and then they're coming across to America and selling it to you guys in a new way like we got long hair hey we don't sing the same way you do but we sing rock and roll our way Mm. the same as the Americans doing what they did on screen and on music, that they're selling it to us here in Australia. We're going, hey, that's cooler than us. We're trying to find our own identity here. Okay. Yeah. I yeah. get it. That's like very the true. Bee Gees, for example, the Bee Gees came from Manchester and immigrated to Australia. And they were playing surf places. They were doing Australian TV. I don't know if you've seen them do Please Please Me on Australian TV in 60. 
364, and they were developing their own sound, but they were Australian. The number one spot in England, and it's called Please Please Me. Culturally, you've got no idea how big the American culture is, especially on me. It just, it's just it's the scene. That's it. Mm. And you had your own music as well. Didn't you have a 45 in the early 80s? Yeah, what happens is, uh, I've got to explain. Yeah. Going back to 1966, the Monkeys television show was shown on the 20th of July in 1967. So the show was shown in 66 in September to mm. America, but wasn't shown here in Melbourne, Australia, till the 20th of July. And mm. my birthday was on the uh, 9th of July. So it's like we got Batman one week before we got the monkeys. Yeah. So you mm. can see Donna's in both shows at with two weeks difference, with mm. one week difference in 67. So, I mean, I remember, as I said, Donna with Davey in that scene where she's they're making the eyes. I mean, that, you don't know how big that was in <laughs> right? You might think it's nothing, but you're a child and you're watching it. And you're looking, how did they get that effect where their eyes are sparkling? <laughs> These guys are in love. It was like, you never seen that on TV. I love your hair. I love your hair. I love your eyes. I love your eyes. I love your nose. I love your mouth. I love your mouth. I love your neck. I love your neck. I love you. My handsome prince. Same with Batman when she was a cheer girl. You never seen the Joker. He was the number one Joker and still is. Oh yeah. Romero. I agree. Hi again. Ah, sweet Sue, shiniest of my bad pennies. <laughs> Boy, Joker, you sure are some card popping out at school like that at Batman. Wondrously whimsical, wasn't it? It was real crazy if you ask me. I might have fainted and given the whole game away. However, you didn't. Ah, I see you have this stuff. Of course. Any trouble getting it? Heck no. Like I told you, being chief cheerleader puts me on the student council. Once you're on that, you can get away with anything. Oh, let's see. You know, this is what I'm talking about. We live for TV. You went to school and you ran home just to watch the monkeys or you ran home to watch Batman. That's how much you've influenced the culture, Donna. And I've got to say that. Well, well, thank you, Plastic. I mean, it's a, it's a global phenomenon that seems to keep living on. You know, it's like my parents' music, my parents' culture, 
was uh, kind of, you know, their thing. And, and uh, it didn't live on as much as now three generations later, th- the 60s is still alive and well. Yeah, well, that's right, uh, Donna. But you got to understand something. You, you've made your catalog or your work. I call it your work, right? What you've done over the years is embedded in culture and history forever. Like, in other words, you're, you're the human. You know what I mean? Like, you're the flesh and blood. You're the person that looks back and you know what you've done in your life. And what you did was groundbreaking. That's the difference, you know? To be on Shindig, you're on the number one show in America at the right time. You're in the movies, beach movies, at the right time. You're on Batman, the right time. Mm. Your timing is precision plus. <laughs> and this is what people have to understand. You know, a lot of people have careers where they wait forever for something to happen. You were at the moment. You went stepping stone, bang, 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 bang. That's a fantastic, unbelievable career. Mm. What a blessing. What a blessing. You know, when I, when I think about, the, you know, the experiences I've had, you know, yeah, they were, they were truly just, you know, a teenager uh, working and um, and having you know meeting these people and playing these roles and and meeting you know people that are are part of well they'll just live on forever um, but uh, you know at the time you just you just have that experience and you're like it didn't it had no impact to think it's gonna it's gonna affect the future and possibly live on beyond your own lifetime. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the thing is, in 1967, you went to Italy, didn't you? Was that for yeah. a movie or was that for modeling? It was for a film. Yeah, but see, that's unheard of too, because you're basically doing it. You know what I mean? If you know James Bond, for example, there's an Australian, Lazenby. Mm-hmm. He turned up to Hollywood and went to the producer and he said, I'm James Bond. But just came out of nowhere and said, I'm the real deal. <laughs> well, you understand, I think he was a car salesman and he just had the gift of the gab and he just looked the right part and he applied for it and they tested him and he ended up doing one James Bond movie. And there he went, yeah. And there, and there you went, His Majesty's Secret Service. But see, with you, Donna, you got to understand, you're looking at somebody, right, and you look at yourself going back. These people, you know what I mean? What it's like to be like, how can I say, a, a goddess of film and music. It's very hard. A lot of people can do film, but a lot of people can't do music. And a lot of people can do music, but not do film. But you can actually do everything. And that's that's why you're the real deal. Do you know what I mean? Well, you know, the other day I saw a little snippet of Audrey Hepburn in uh, My Fair Lady singing I Want to Dance All Night. Or should you know? Mm. And um, and I'm thinking, you know, Audrey Hepburn had a wonderful voice. I wished that she would have sung it herself, even if she wasn't as perfect as Marnie Nixon. You know, it, it, the authenticity of hearing, and same thing with Natalie Wood and West Side Story. You know, I, the imperfection to me, anyway, is is more authentic if it's coming from your heart and from your soul. And um, maybe that's part of the culture that, that you're feeling is that we all never, not one of us was looking for perfection. We were just mm-hmm. working hard 
And like James Brown, you know, the hardest working guy in, in show business at the time. And, uh, but, you know, n nobody thought of themselves as perfect. Nobody thought of themselves as a great singer or a great dancer or anything, unless you were Rudolf Nureyev or something, something like that. <laughs> you know? That's so true. And, and, you know, Plastic, we've been watching a lot of your internet show um, where you interview so many people from the, the 60s, whether it's performers, whether it's people who have written, you know, books on, on that period. How did you go from, you know, Melbourne, Australia, being interested in, in pop culture to hosting a show that you've, you've got hundreds of internet episodes? Well, I'm up to 630 now wow. and 600 was done in 20 months. Wow. But I've got to explain my background. Mm. What happens is I've had an ear for music since I was eight years old and I've written 2,400 original songs. Right wow. now, that came because I have that gift. Like Donna has that gift of being Donna. Like, I mean, when other people tell you you're great, and I'm talking now about Donna, I'm not talking about <laughs> myself. When other people tell you, Donna, you're great, you've got to believe that you are. Now, it's not an ego thing, but it's just like you got to understand the fantastic career that you had, That that's what makes it. You know, like who doesn't know Donna singing on Shindig? Who doesn't know some of the songs you sing? Who doesn't know you, let's say, on the beach movies? I mean, Batman, you've got to understand the biggest Facebook groups at the moment on the net are Batman. So, mm. I mean, there's the culture there. You put your video of yourself talking about Batman and it's everywhere. This is what it is. Things are instant. But going back to myself, right, in elementary school, we call it state school here. I went to one, uh, my state school, I'm going to give them a rap now. They're called <laughs> Auburn South State School in Taronga Road, East Hawthorne. Now, East Hawthorne is a very leafy, beautiful suburb in the 60s. And my elementary school has become posh. When I went, it wasn't posh. It was mm. just like you went to elementary school. But at that time, you didn't have a TV guide, so you didn't know what was on TV. Like Friday night was like Time Tunnel and whatever, and then you sort of understood when Batman was on or when the monkeys were on. But moving away from that, I'm a big fan of the monkeys and the monkeys influenced my life and that's songwriting. And when I mean songwriting, three of the greatest songwriters that have influenced my life forever have been Mike Nesmith, um, Boyce and Hart that wrote all the early songs for the monkeys. I'm not your stepping stone. Last train to Clarksville. Now with Mike Nesmith, I just want to say I've done a two hour tribute video show for him. And if you see the first five minutes, Donna, I'm even crying. I put oh. together a video that goes two hours and all the fans come on and show their love for Mike Nismith. And it's true, it's on the net. But the thing is, you've got to understand is the day before I did an interview with Michael Lindsay Hogg. Now, that was the Beatles uh, filmmaker and director in 1969. He did the Twickenham film. He filmed all mm. that. He filmed them on the rooftop. He filmed, oh. the, he filmed the Letter P movie. So what happens is I just interviewed him for the third time. And this is after the Peter Jackson three-part series. It's the yeah. biggest thing in the world now called yeah. Back. It's amazing. Plus, right? So you've got to understand, I, I did two interviews in July. And now after Peter Jackson has used 60 hours of his film and released this three-part documentary, I had this interview with Michael Lindsay Hogg again mm. early December. Now, on that day when I did that interview, I'm honest with you, I was like, feeling so high and then the yeah. next day michael nesmith passed away and oh, i was God. feeling 
so low. I'm so sorry. And it's affected me a lot because when you look up and you say, to me, he influenced my life so much as a songwriter. And thanks to him, I've written 2,400 songs. Being that kid that used to watch the monkeys that was influenced so much by the monkey sound. But as I said, do yourselves a favour and go to the Plastic EP page and look up the Michael Nesmith tribute show that goes two hours. And that first five minutes that I cut of his videos as as the monkey, right, Mike Nesmith, it, like, it brings people to tears. People have emailed me and said, I'm affected just by watching the first five minutes. Mm, yeah. Well, it's beautiful that, you know, someone can affect so many people and touch your heart. And, and in my own personal experience, Plastic and Dr. Adam, that, you know, there's an expansiveness when the body decides, you know, I'm not going to stick around anymore. The soul expands into the universe and can even be more influential and more powerful with the yeah, memory. I, I totally agree with that because what you don't understand is it's like John Lennon. When, oh, yeah. he, when he was shot and passed away, you know the impact he had on the world immediately after that. This is and what happened. Same as Mike Nesmith. He affected everyone in the world because to us, that's the John Lennon of the Beatles. He was the Mike Nesmith of the Monkees. Do you know what I mean? Yes, yes, yes. I'm so glad, you know, I had an opportunity to see him in the last, oh, several years. Um, we were we were together on the East Coast, and um, he was very kind and very generous, and um, we spoke a little bit. And also, um, Mickey, I think Mickey is also so underrated, you know, his his rendition of I'm a Believer is one of my very favorites. Yeah, exactly for me. I remember singing that song from the minute it came out. Let me tell you, right, because a lot of people don't know the nitty-gritty of these things. But I'm a Believer, written by Neil Diamond, was the first song mm -hmm. to be number one in America and England simultaneously at the same time. That had never happened before because what happens is, for example – the Beatles would release a song in the UK and then three months later, whatever, release it in the US. So that is the first song to sell. Pre-sold 1,100,000 copies of the song before it was released. Mm. Mm. Well, that's enlightening. <laughs> thanks, thanks for turning me on to that. And he's also the greatest rock and roll singer Mickey Dolan's that ever was. And that's why Mike Nismith used to say, listen, can you, do, can you record the song? I wrote it. The kind of girl I can love, can you do it? Because they knew Mickey had one of the greatest vocals. And I think that vocal comes from him being an actor, like playing Circus Boy, and just having that kind of voice that is so unique. And when they put that down on record, you, it sounded like nothing it was or has been. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, um, You've done, you know, so many interviews and spoken to so many people. Do and not to pick favourites, but do some particular ones are more memorable than others? Yeah, I got to be honest with you. When I had Donna Lauren <laughs> right on the buzz with uh, Robin, I mm. mean that show. If you see it, the more I see it, the more I love it because Donna is herself, and Donna goes along with what's going, and she clicks and she gets it. I mean, when we when we do that scene of me being Davey and Donna being <laughs> Davey. I didn't get it for three seconds. But then after I got it, 
when she was on the screen. I mean, that that's something unique. You look back on that, and people have been watching that for generations. You know, mm. that's the kind of thing I like. How sweet. Thank you. <laughs> And um, just to uh, just to go back, so what was your? You got into music. You've written, you know, so many songs. What was the the deal with I, I, you having a record in the early eighties? How did that I, come about? I got, I've got to explain. Here I am, and I can tell you the address. I'm walking down. <laughs> I used to live in Campbell Grove, East Thornton, and then I'm walking down another street that's called Campbell Road. And on the corner of Burke Road and Campbell Road, I'm walking. I think I'm seven, eight years old, right? And this is mm. true. This song comes into my head called Forget All I Said. And it went like this. It goes, I thought you were meant for me. My eyes were misled. You had someone else I didn't know. Please forget all I said. Forget all I said to you. Forget all I said. Forget all I said with you. Please forget all I said. So I got the first bit and then I got the second bit straight after. Mm. And then I sang the same thing but a different verse. And that song stayed with me. And it was only until I was like 23 years old that I started recording in the studio. And then we put out vinyl. And the first vinyl I put out was, because the name of the band was called Plastic EP and the Records. So Plastic EP stands for the EP of the 60s, which is four songs, as Mm -hmm. you know. It's not made of, uh, you can call it, instead of being made of vinyl, you say it's made of plastic. John Lennon used to refer to records as vinyl, being, can you play me that piece of plastic? (laughs) So that's why I got the name Plastic EP in the records. So what happens is I released one single at home. I'm not coming back. Then get this. We go in the studio to record our second song, right, which is called When You Want to Make a Record, and I'm Not Coming Back. And when we went back to finish that song, When You Want to Make a Record, the master tapes had disappeared from the studio. Oh, so now, lucky we had it on cassette. So now we've got a song called When You Want to Make a Record. And the irony is we can't actually <laughs> make it into vinyl. So we can't actually make the record. <laughs> I mean, that's that's like crazy. And then what happens is I said, you can't have plastic EP in the records. It's too long. It's like Cliff Richard and The Shadows. In 1982, we'll become the EPs. So the mm. EPs, which means the extended place. And then yeah. I released... Forget all I said. The, the way I sang it when I was eight years old is the same way I sang it. When that I was is amazing. That is amazing. <laughs> God. Well, that's creativity for you. You know, you're just channeling creativity through you and expressing it the way it comes out. I can't change the way I am, Donna, because I love talking. You know, it's like <laughs> I had the gift of the gab, and that's why I wanted to do interviews before. Um, 2020 but it was just because of the COVID and the technology that I was ready and I'd shot all my videos in um, I'd done the song Hey Bananas We Think You're Groovy I'd gone down to Hollywood and filmed it down Hollywood Boulevard for the song Hey Bananas We Think You're Groovy so when I was ready to do the interviews I said to myself well out of over 2,000 songs which is the one that's going to crack it in America and because I'm so you know, Americanized, I think so, more than Australian. I said, look, because of the Banana Splits, and it's basically a tribute to them as well, the song, I go, hey, Bananas, I think you're groovy. It's so way out, and the Americans love way out. I go, this has got to be the song, the theme song to the to the um, show. And I was spot on in March 2020 when I first started. 
we did pretty much the same. I, I don't remember Donna when we started, but it was sometime during COVID in early early twenty. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, you know, I mean, it's the spirit that moves you, and and the uh, feeling of uh, no limitation. You know, to be able to communicate however you know however you can and um to me there's no there's no boundaries you know i mean between adam and i we've we've been talking for uh um, what about 30 almost 40 episodes now Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um and it's it there's there's absolutely limitless we're we're talking to people all over the world and you know from from the (laughs) comfort of our of our homes and um, I think it's changed, you know, for for however, you know, this this virus has caused a, a, a shock wave uh, around the globe. I think that um, for the highest good, it ultimately will prove that we are all one and that we're all coming together in whatever way we can. And in your way, plastic, it's communicating, 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 and ditto, ditto, ditto from America. Yeah, but the thing is, I've got to say too, Donna, you got to understand, I mean, you know, I admire certain people in my life, right? And give you an idea. Ivor Davis, one of the greatest journalists in the world, he was there in 1964. He was on tour with the Beatles, the only British correspondent that went with the Beatles five weeks with them on tour. And not only that, he was in the room when Elvis met the Beatles. Now, I take my head off to him. And you're the same. You're in the same category. When it comes to entertainment, music and acting, you're there. You're an American icon. Make no mistake. And that's why I take my hat off to you. Not only do you love that person, that's there on the screen and singing. I love the person I'm talking to now because I admire you as a person and your feelings towards the planet and your beliefs and the way you are and the way that you really care. Not only do you care for the planet, you care for people, right? And that's the bottom line. And caring caring for people and caring for all life on planet Earth. I care for the trees in the Amazon. Yeah, of course. See, somebody sent me a photo and it affected me and they're hugging a tree. They're they're in Arizona or New Mexico, actually New Mexico, and they've got their hands around the trunk of a tree. And I said, how emotional is that, that you're actually giving a tree a hug? That's right. That's right. And then we're learning, you know, this is a little off subject, but we're learning that the that the exposure of the trunk and the limbs and the canopy above ground are equal to what's going on below the earth and the mycelium that reconnects with all of the roots that go deep, deep, deep into the earth and you know, is is a symbol for creating moisture and and water, rain. You know, to to actually recycle the life. And, yeah, but I, and, I totally agree with what you're saying. I don't dis disagree or, or disbelieve anything you say because we're born into nature and we're part of nature. It's like when we're dying, we're in the ground. We become what? You know what I mean? Well, I'm going to be, I'm going to be dust. I think, I'm, <laughs> I, I think we all come from the stars and I think, I think we all end up stardust, even, yep. even the bad guys in the, <laughs> you know, I think we all end up stardust. 
Yeah, but you know what? I bet you haven't heard this, Donna. What they can do is now, if, for example, someone's cremated, they can get the ashes and actually put it into a record. They actually put mm. the dust into an album. Well, you know what? We'll have to talk to Jack White about that one because he seems to be the premier vinyl maker. You know? <laughs> can you imagine yourself on one of your albums? Going around and around <laughs> and around. Forever. Well, that- <laughs> that is really being in the groove, I must yeah, exactly. say. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I God. love that concept. <laughs> <laughs> and we've got we've to ask Plastic, like I know you've interviewed tons of people and so we're sort of turning it a little bit on you, but is there like a, and I know you've spoken to us before and we've both been on your show, which is really a lot of fun, but is there a question, a burning question that you haven't asked Donna before that you'd like to ask her today? I mean, that's really great. I've probably got 10 million questions to ask Donna because she lived it. You know what I mean? Mm. To, to be able to be – and I've spoken to her, as I said, about the monkeys. That's why I like when I do interviews. It's like you've got so much time to talk to someone. When I spoke to Ivor mm. Davis about Elvis meeting the Beatles, we spent 35 minutes. Mm. Commercial television here in Melbourne gave him six minutes on the same subject six months after I did the interview. Mm. So coming back to Donna's question – I just want to say, Donna, you grew up with all these musical influences around you and playing with these performers and seeing them and meeting them. If you have to say one musical influence that affected your life and your career, who is it? (sighs) I have to start with Hank Williams. Hank Hank Williams sang a song, Your Cheating Heart, that really touched me. When I was only two years old, I was... I was um, at a neighbor's, uh, you know, sitting on a swing and I heard that twangy voice coming out of a doorway on that property and it just went straight into my heart. And after I heard that and I couldn't possibly understand what your cheating heart meant, but I heard that music and I knew how I felt. Your cheating heart will make you You'll cry and cry and try to sleep, but sleep won't come the whole night through. So right after I heard Hank Williams, the one voice that really penetrated deeply was Patsy Cline. Oh, that's great. Yeah, for sure. And And then as you started working with people, probably all sorts of... Uh, producers or arrangers sort of further influence you. If we think of some of those early people, you know, Jesse Hodges, I think, did your first record um, and then you worked with him later and did that wonderful song, If You Love Me, in uh, 1963. We were talking the other day with John Hartman about uh, even, you know, you're working with Sonny Bono in the early 60s as well. Oh, my God. Yeah, the first time I saw Sonny, he was wearing one of those furry vests. (laughs) (laughs) I got you, babe. (laughs) And, you know, and Cher and I, you know, she's about a year older than I. And when we were teenagers, you know, I always used to make my clothes. And so did she. Well, she didn't make her clothes, but she liked buying material. And we used to go to the same fabric shop and, and select select fabric and I would go home and make my own and I don't know who would make hers but but that's the way it started you know 
But they're um, unbelievable stories. And I just got to say, you know, Jan and Dean, right? You've probably met them. Oh, yeah. And that song, The Little Old Lady from Pasadena, I can't stop playing that. Okay, now listen, I've got, so I've got a little tip for you, okay? Yes. Okay, because, you know, my husband, Jared's best friend, who passed away several years ago, um, used to work with them. And he's the one, he's the high voice in Little Old Lady from Pasadena. <laughs> yeah, Phil Sloan, that's P.F. Sloan's voice. It's the little old lady from Pasadena. The little old lady from Pasadena. Has a pretty little flower bed of white gardenias. But parked in a rickety old garage is a brand new shiny red super stock And he wrote a lot of songs. He wrote oh, yeah. Secret Agent Man. Yeah, that's what that's a great song. See, to look, I gotta explain this is what a lot of people don't get, right? You gotta understand in 1964, I'm watching TV, right? And I'm only six years old, and I see screaming and people going berserk and whatever, and it's happening here like this mania, and I'm only six. I don't get it, right? This is what people don't understand why I'm a monkey fan. Because I'm a monkey fan because eight, nine years old, I've grown up from six and I'm ready to enter that sphere of what music is my generation. And it Mm -hmm. was bang on the monkeys. The monkeys was my music. I could not have been born at a better time to have grown up with the monkeys being my group, my generation, my time in 67. You know, I say every day, I'm so thankful that, yeah, I'm born in, the monkeys were the number one group. And the great thing is no matter what group you're born with, for example, i got a sister, she grew up with ABBA. And I had a brother, he grew up with Michael Jackson. Every mm. fan grows up with some musical influence that's their number one influence, but they all end up at the Beatles. That's yep, the you're right. <laughs> and you never get over the music that you grew up with. You never get over it. It's true. As I said, I'm a believer. It's like my number one song, but I also got to tell you, over time, you just may be the one by Mike Nesmith was like really right up there. Now, a song that a lot of people don't know is off the second album, More of the Monkeys. That kind of girl I could love has become like my number one, like a great song. It's okay, not we're going to play it. I'm a believer, but the kind of girl I can love, it's a great song. We're going to play it and, and, tr- and make a tribute to you. You're so kind. I feel that I've grown up with American culture, even though I'm born here in Melbourne, right? And it's like, I don't know, 
I just when I went to America, and I've got to explain to you, right? I'm walking around everywhere in my gold suit, the original plastic EP with the same <laughs> glasses I wear in the interview. And those glasses have been with me on my musical journey. Right? That's what people don't understand. And my suit, the jacket is like a tribute to Elvis. My glasses may be like a tribute to Roy Orbison. You know, like it's got different musical in- uh, influences. Mm, yeah. But to be honest with you, it's not. It's just somebody's mentioned that, and I've thought about that, and it could be in a general way. But me is me as Plastic EP and always has been. It's like it's unique, and I can't change the way I look, but I can tell you, the only way I can explain it to you is when I put those glasses on, it's like I transform from a normal mortal to Superman. <laughs> It's like, I can't explain it to you. And somebody has told me, he said, you just like, you become this thing that like, I can't even explain it. And I know that the stars aligned, and this was meant to be, because there's so many things that have happened in my life, Donna, that at first I didn't want to believe it, but it's actually true. I'll give you an example. I wanted to interview somebody, right? And I tried for two weeks to contact this person. And I found that they lived in Sydney. But I couldn't get through. No Facebook, no Messenger, no nothing. A couple of days later, an interview's lined up and this person turns around and said, do you know this person? And I go, yeah, I'll get them on the show. And they came <laughs> on the show. Now, I don't know what, what you call that, but that's you're a man. You're a manifester. Well, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we can, uh, when you mean manifester, explain that to me. You're me. Yeah. When you visualize and when you have a, a dream that is so real that you can reach and touch and feel it, but it's, it's not um, manifested yet, you become a manifester. Right. I get it. Because it's good to explain things. I'll give you an example. My wife, Vicky, I love her. Viva Las Vegas, one of the greatest Elvis movies. Mm. I love Anne Margaret. Mm. I just do. And my wife looks like Anne Margaret. That's why I'm married. I'll tell the truth. But the great thing is, my wife, when she talks to me, she gives me a fifth of the story. Like, I'll give you an example. I want to find biscuits in the kitchen. I say to my wife, where are the biscuits? Her answer will be in the cupboard. And I'm looking at 20 cupboards. (laughs) Now we're playing the game, let's pick the cupboard. You know what I mean? And how long have you guys been married for? 37 years. Amazing. 36, 37, yeah. I mean, I've got to remember where I live now. <laughs> you know? Well, well, you know, I mean, it sounds like to me that, that she surprises you with new things all the time, which is the secret to uh, a happy marriage. Yeah, but i got to explain this. This is really, you're never going to believe this, right? I can't keep secrets. I mean, you know what I mean, that. I'm not a gossip or anything, but. Sort of like if there's news, it's news. It's no secret to me. So what happens is when I before I got married to Vicky, or when I got married to Vicky, right? I got Vicky in the band. I said, listen, I need a drummer. You got a drum lessons, and you know slowly you'll get it, right? So she went to drum lessons, and what happens is for 25 years, I never told anybody that Vicky's my wife in the EPs. Now I don't know why, but the reason being is I thought of John Lennon saying he never spoke about his wife and told them I'm married and I'm in the Beatles. I don't know where that idea came from, but it came from, let's say, John Lennon, not talking about Cynthia Lennon. And I can't keep a secret. And I kept a secret for 25 years. 
that my wife is in the band, the EP, she sings and she drums. Now, I didn't even know why I did that or why it happened, but I can't keep a secret for a week. How do you keep it for 25 <laughs> years? That makes sense. Well, you know, Plastic, I think, you know, you individuated from your marriage and uh, and respected her and acknowledged her as an individual and a competent musician. So, of course, you want to work with her. And, you know, sometimes if you label someone a wife or a sibling or, you know, that that people think there's some sort of obligation or, you know, uh, not not the true feeling of wanting to make music together. Um, But in this case, you know, I think you just withheld that information of you being married to her because she could be a she could be recognized as a talented musician, uh, you know, in with her own identity. Yep, that's what it is. You nailed it. And also, I got to say, right, because a lot of people don't get this. I used to devote, like you know yourself, you devote time to craft. I can tell you, every spare minute I had in my life, it was writing a song. So what happens is the joke is I'd be upstairs writing songs, and this is true, and Wally and I would be upstairs, the bass player, and we'd write them together and do whatever. And I'd be yelling downstairs, Mrs. Plastic EP, can you make Mr. Plastic EP a cup of tea for years and years and years? Because <laughs> no one knew the joke, just us two knew, and no one knew. And people were asking on the videos when we did the music videos, you people seem to be close because they didn't know. <laughs> and that was like the in joke that I had with her all the time. But you know, Donna, what's really great, she sings better than me. She does. Oh. And she she compliments me. But where I make the big mistake is I brought her into music without even telling her. I'd say, here's a song. And she'd go, I haven't even heard the song yet. I said, no problem. This is what you do. Bang, bang, bang. And she'd do it on the spot. It was like she adapted like any marriage. You know what mm. I mean? It's like the only way I can say in my words is a marriage is when you have two horses, let's say, pulling along a carriage and the horses are going at the same pace. I agree. The same goal. And that makes an even ride because otherwise it's very bumpy. (laughs) Exactly. But you know what? Now in these times, we're living in different times. I'm not going to get into it. We are. There's there's a lot going on. And I think that's why it's been so important for all of us to do something creative in the last two years to put something out there for people go well dr adam i Mm. promise that you know when the borders open up would i love to come down and be with y'all yeah but you know donna you come down australia with your husband and my wife and i will take you to places that you won't know i'll give you an example outside of melbourne there's a place called the yarra valley and that's where they have the grapevines they make the wine and they got one one winery there that the French bought called Chandot. You can look up the Yarra Valley. You can, you probably know them. Know yeah, it I do. Right? I do. Beautiful but place. But what happens is the mountains meet the wineries. Mm. But what you don't know is in those mountains, my parents bought a property in 1965. Now that property is 115 acres. And I go there and I cut the grass mm. and I do things there. And it's like, it's one of the most peaceful places you can go. And oh. what my wife and I will do is take you to the winery, have a nice um, lunch on us, and then we'll go to the farm and you'll go and you'll see this valley that opens up. It's like God's earth. I can't, I can't describe it any other way. 
Oh, I'm so happy for you. I would love to experience that with you, Plastic. And you know what, Donna? And this is what I love. There's no boundaries. When I mean there's no boundaries, you're like to me now next door. This is what this technology, I don't feel like, Adam's in Australia. I feel like you're next door to me now. I agree. I agree. There's no separation. And that's, and that's the other thing. That's the other super, super element that's starting to happen. People are starting to feel more connected. And, you know, it's this confluence of needing to be restricted, but yet when you are restricted, you're, li- you're longing to be together. So, you know, um, we're going to come out of this. It's going to take a while. But, um, and when we do, oh my gosh, I can't wait to visit. They reckon in Melbourne, in, uh, I don't know what year they said, 2027 or whatever it is, they reckon there's going to be 5.9 million people as Melbourne's population, because I can tell you, a lot of people from America are coming to Australia because they know the quality of life is so good. And I met someone from Los Angeles and I said, do you tell all your friends about Australia? What do you love about Australia? He goes, I don't tell anybody about Australia. He goes, I don't want them to come. And I said, well, what do you like about Australia the, the best? And he goes, I love your um, Medicare system and what you got here and these benefits that basically people live. He said, I just love the lifestyle here. Because what you got to understand is Australia, even though we have a population now, Australia can have more people here. But with anything that goes on at the moment, the cost of living has gone through the roof. Because my parents were Greek. So I'm lucky enough I can speak Greek, and I've been to Greece four times. And I've got to mm. tell you something, Donna. You've went to Italy. You must have gone to Greece at some stage. I absolutely did not, and I'm so sorry that I can't. I, I mean, I, I love to, um, and I, and I've heard about Mykonos uh, so much. But uh, please share your experience. Well, I want to talk about Greece now, if I can. What happens is we talk about Mykonos, but I haven't even been to Mykonos because what happens is because my parents came from the north, I love the sea. So last time we went, we hired a car because my brother-in-law's got a Greek license. Even though I've got a Greek passport, all my members of family now got Greek passports. So what happens, I don't drive there because it's crazy, but the Germans have made the autobahns, the highways in Greece now, you can do 130 kilometres. So what happens is I picked two or three places on the net that I wanted to go and see. And one of these places was a seaside town. The one I went there was just beautiful. It was three streets. And we stayed in this uh, very reasonable um, hotel. And the beach is like 100 feet from the window. And mm-hmm. you go there and it's like you don't need a million dollars to feel a million dollars. I'm mm-hmm. outside the um, cafe. They've got different cafes and they've got nightlife. It's three streets that lights up at night. And I'm looking out and there's this big rock in the middle of the water. And I'm just sitting there having my breakfast. And I felt like that's a million dollars. Then there's another island called Paros. You probably heard of it. And Tom Hanks has a property at Anti Paros. It's 15 minutes away from mm. Paros by boat. This this Paros island is very underdeveloped. Like it's not so commercial. Mm-hmm. So what happens is my wife said, "Get a car, and drive around," and I did. 
and I found this beach by accident and I just stopped the car, got out with my wife and there was eight German tourists and all these beautiful lounge chairs like with the bamboo and whatever and they had like this um, tavern like you could buy something mm. just there and I looked at this bay and I'm not lying to you, the minute I went into that water and there was no one there, it's like every stress or everything you have in your body just lifted and went straight up to the air and I felt so close to God. It To me, it was a life-changing moment. Oh, it does sound like a baptism. Well, I was in the, I went in the water and I'm telling you, there was no one there. I was swimming on my own. And where do you get a whole beautiful bay and you're the other one in the water? I mean, that to me is like, it's the uniqueness of going somewhere where people don't go mm-hmm. and realizing yeah. that it doesn't have to be commercialized to be beautiful. And that's what it had, the natural beauty. Yes, yes, yes. And and I pray for more natural beauty. And I pray for the consciousness of mankind, as I believe the three of us do, to appreciate nature and let nature be and stop exploiting it. Yeah, yes. I totally agree. I totally agree. This planet, as I said, I don't know if you um, used to watch the Archie show, for example, it was... In 1969, those cartoons weren't a joke because they were talking about the industries and the factories and all the soot and all the pollution that was coming out of the factories back then in 69 saying, we got to look after the world to protect it back then. Oh, that's right. Oh, the consciousness has been there. It's just the greed and arrogance has gotten in the way. Yeah, well, that's another thing. But as I said, I don't need a lot to make me happy and I can say, you know, the most richest people in the world, they come back to simplicity because simplicity, it, it's what it's all about. For wow. example, I don't need five cars. One will do me. You know, I've got a friend of mine at the moment. I'm being honest. He's got a, he's got a situation where he's had to go overseas. So he's, he's given me his house to look after. It's got a pool in the back. It's beautiful. I go there to water the garden. Because I want to help my friend because he needed to go to America for something. And what happens is I water it. He said, use the pool. I go there. I have a swim. And I just enjoy sometimes just being left alone to be able to reflect. And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people like Mm -hmm. yourself, Donna, you probably go out to nature and your mind just switches off and you're one with the earth. Mm -hmm. Yes. Actually, I've chosen to live that way. Well, that's great. Yeah. So, yeah. When, <laughs> if you, if you ever, you, of course, and of Dr. Adam has always mm. had an open invitation, <laughs> you know, to visit me whenever you wish. Um, right now I'm living uh, in Arizona and I am looking at the view of an entire mountain range as my backyard. See, that's unbelievable. But you know what it is, Donna? It's like meeting friends along the path in your life. And there's certain people that I, I meet, as I said, and I admire them for who they are. And you are one of those people. I can oh, okay. name five people on my hand that say, these are the greatest people that I admire for what they did and for what they're doing and who they are. That's all it is. It's so simple. Fantastic. So, what a, so what a nice, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's just the perfect way to... Thank uh, you to wrap up so plastic ep thank you for joining us we look forward to doing it again and please everyone all our listeners 
Uh, go check out Plastic EP's fantastic interviews with just so, so, so many people. Um, and, you know, those of you who like our show, I think are really going to like Plastic's show. So thanks, Plastic, for joining us and Happy New Year. I'm a believer. I'm a believer. <laughs> I was going to say, I love you guys. You know why? You're with it. Your podcast is one of the greatest podcasts out there. And I'm oh, one of your you. biggest fans, right? Awesome. <laughs> You're a darling. Thank you. Thank you, Plastic. And please give our love to your wife, your, your, your love of your life, your beloved, and your favorite music maker. Well, we'll have to share more stories in the future. Yeah, what a day. You know, I've woken up today and it's a bit overcast and cloudy. But just talking to you, it's like, don't you feel we're on top of the world? I mean, because we only want to bring happiness. We're not in the doom and gloom. Yes, yes, yes. I agree. That's (laughs) why we call ourselves Love's a Secret Weapon. Oh, 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 oh,